0: I don't know how familiar you are with that parable. Some of you have probably read it many times. There may be some of you here this morning, in truth, that that's the first time you've heard that parable. I don't know if you've heard a message on this parable before. But when you listen to it, whether you've listened to the parable or read it many times or for the first time, how does it make you feel? Don't you think that there is... Isn't there a sense, well, there is in my spirit, that at some point you react against it because you think that inherently there is an unfairness in this story how would you feel if you had been out working all day you've agreed to a price that you're going to work for with the landowner and you've been out all day and working hard and at the end of the day you see these guys who roll up they've worked for one hour and they get a day's wage as well and you're paid exactly the same now be honest wouldn't you feel just a little bit unfair? Of course you would. This parable really shocks you when you read it, it causes things to rise up in you and the question that we're looking at this morning and it's connected with next week, it's just a mini series that we're doing, we're looking at the question this morning, is God unfair? Because it's quite clear that this parable is told by Jesus to tell us something about the kingdom of God and about what his father is like. The specific character that we want to focus in on in chapter 20 is described as the Lord of the vineyard or the owner of the vineyard. Lord is a good way of describing it because the word is the word for Lord. So the Lord of the vineyard obviously is God the Father and Jesus tells this parable because he wants to help his listeners and he wants us to understand something about the character and nature of God and so we're looking This morning at this question, is God unfair? Next week we're talking about God and guilt and the two are connected. And as we wrestle this morning with this question of, is God unfair? What we're going to wrestle with is the notion that God actually forgives people that we don't think deserve forgiveness. That's really what this parable is about. It's about people who feel that they have some sort of right because they've been following God for a long time And these other people who come late uh, think in terms of how we've described the deathbed conversions and the questions that arise about that and people become cynical and they say, how can God forgive someone who's lived their life the way they've wanted to live uh, for their whole life and then at the very last, God forgives them. And that parable falls into this area of seeking to answer that question. And what I find interesting about it is because... Our society now prides itself on being inclusive, doesn't it? We hear it all the time. Our society says that we are an inclusive society, that we accept everybody. And so it was not actually so much with amusement, but with a real sense of ouch, because I agree with it, that this cartoon appeared recently by Michael Looney. Sorry, it's uh, not up on that one. That's uh, my fault um, for looking over there but I thought that this just captured what our society is like. Have a look at the sign. Warning, this is an inclusive society. And if we feel you are talking, thinking or behaving in a non-inclusive way, you will be excluded. That is our society though, isn't it? We say that we are inclusive, but if you or somebody else does not agree with the narrative that's being followed, you are excluded, you are cancelled, you are ignored, and that's happening over and over again. But our society still prides itself on being inclusive, and it it comes out in deceptive ways. An article was put up by a friend of mine uh, a few weeks back, And this was in response to the recent census. And you might remember that the recent census had a fairly significant jump in people who identified themselves as non-religious. And so this article was written by a journalist with the ABC and uh, it was headed up, I'm not religious but my faith is beyond belief. And he went on to describe himself. A person, he says, very clearly he doesn't have any faith or any spiritual belief but he began to define himself as a person. And and this is really the spirit of the age. This is the way in which people identify themselves. So listen to some of his words. He says, With no faith, religion or spiritual practice, I believe in love, hope, truth and my fellow humans. I believe in equality, of opportunity of education, of access to water, food, shelter. I believe in human rights, the rule of law, voting, reason, and respect. I don't want to hurt anyone. Dignity is good. Love yourself. Listen to this next one. Love your neighbor. Find compassion for yourself, your family, your friends, and then perhaps the whole world. I hate injustice, bullying, greed, and tyranny. Do you have anything? Do you have any problem with what he said? I don't. Isn't that the deceptive nature, though, of the spirit of the age? That you can be all of these things and not have belief or faith. But as my friend rightly pointed out, and this, folks, this gets to the heart of what we're talking about this morning. As my friend pointed out when he put that article up, he said, I'm not religious, or he said, I'm a good moral person. Love yourself, love your neighbour. But then my friend pointed this out, there is nothing about loving your enemies. And isn't that the difference? Isn't it that people of faith are enabled to love their enemies, to love the unlovable? The question we have this morning, is God unfair? Can God forgive the unforgivable? Does God forgive the unforgivable? Should God forgive the unforgivable? Well, let's have a look at this parable and see what the scriptures have to say, because I'm coming from the premise this morning that the church, and I want you to hear this, the church is the only truly inclusive community. It is the only community that exists that can truly include everybody and the reason it can and the reason that it does is because the God we worship is an inclusive God. There is room For everybody, and I want to emphasize this this morning there is room for everybody in God's kingdom. Absolutely everybody. Let's have a look at the parable itself. Let's have a look at inclusivity meets the kingdom of God. Because we want to answer this question Does God really let people off the hook who live lives that are terrible lives and lives of no faith, but at the end they might commit themselves to Him? Does God lift let people off the hook well let's consider this inclusivity meets the kingdom of God let's think for a moment about the fact of going into the vineyard I want you to have a look at the first seven verses now let me just describe what's going on here four times in this passage it is mentioned that the owner sends people into the vineyard well on three occasions he sends them into the vineyard the first it talks about he was looking for workers to send into the vineyard and then it's mentioned three more times And he is described as the lord of the vineyard. And the practice of the day was that when harvest came in and you needed workers, you would go down to the marketplace what Jesus is describing here is a common practice in the days in which he lived. You would go into the marketplace and there would be a group of people standing around who were looking to be hired in order to work in someone's vineyard and to help them out with the harvest. And so this owner does what is the culturally appropriate thing to do. He goes down to the marketplace, he is looking for workers and you would go down at around about 6am. In fact, a working day in the culture of Jesus began at sunup, and concluded at sundown. So you would get out there early, the scripture tells us that he goes at the dawn of day, uh, he gets down into the marketplace, he is looking for the hired workers, because he needs people to come and bring the harvest in. The harvest is ready, he needs workers. So around about six o'clock, he comes to these day workers. Now you have to understand these people. Day workers, day laborers in that culture, lived from day to day. If they did not work that day, they received no pay, they would not be able to buy food. So these were people who lived literally from day to day, hand to mouth. And so for them standing in the marketplace, for an owner to come in, they're desperate for work. Because they know they need that day's pay. And so the owner comes along. You have to understand this about day laborers as well. It's kind of hard to get our heads around. But these people were actually despised in the community. Because they worked hand to mouth, because they worked day to day, they were looked down upon. They were actually only regarded as being slightly above slaves. Interesting, isn't it? But along comes this owner of the vineyard and he hires the first group of men. He comes and he says to them, I want to send you into the vineyard and they agree on a price and the price is a denarius, which was in that culture a day's wage. It was... Uh, just a, a piece of silver, but the going rate to hire a day labourer was a day a denarius for the day. That was a day's wage. Put it into the Australian context, that would mean that if you were go, working day to day, you'd probably be hired for around about three hundred and sixty-two dollars for the day. So it's the going rate, and he sends them off. They agree, and they go in to the harvest, into the vineyard at the beginning of the day. Okay, so they're there from sun up to sun down. Now, what is really interesting is where the story goes from here on in. Scripture tells us that Jesus comes back, at uh, the landowner comes back again at 9 o'clock. He then comes back at 12 o'clock and he then comes back at 3 o'clock. Let's have a look at the guys that he hires at 9 o'clock. I want you to notice this. He says to them, I need more workers. He sends them into the vineyard, but only with the promise, I will do what is right. I will do what is right. There is no agreement on price. So at nine o'clock, these workers go in solely on the promise of the owner of the vineyard who says, I will do what is right. There is an element of trust there. Now, don't think for a minute that the guys who went in at sunup weren't trusting the owner because they were unscrupulous owners. They have agreed to a price, but he could renege on that price. He's the guy who's got all the power. So there is trust all the way through here. But these guys hired at nine o'clock and at 12 and at 3, are not given a price. It's simply based on the promise of, I will do what is right. And off they go to the vineyard. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. Look at verse 6. It came out in our translation. At 5 o'clock, there's an hour to go. One hour to go. The landowner comes. He finds these guys standing around in in the marketplace... And he's saying, what are you doing here? Now, there's a a reason behind that question. Maybe these day laborers are really bad guys. Maybe they have a reputation. Maybe other owners know that they're they're worthless guys and we would never hire them. And so he asks the question, why are you standing here? You see, he wants to find out. And they answer. And I think they answer honestly. They say, because no one's hired us. No one has has, uh, taken us into their harvest this morning. And so the landowner says, look, head off out there, work for an hour. Into the vineyard, he sends them. As I said, no mention made at all of price for the workers that are hired after the initial batch. Now here's where it gets really, really interesting. Have a look at the next statement. When evening had come, The owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages. Why this gets interesting is because now we see that the last come first and the first come last. This is uh, the point that Jesus wants to drive home. Look at verse 8. Evening had come. Under Jewish law, you have to understand this, under Jewish law, the worker had to be paid at sundown. If you were a day's labourer, you expected, according to the law, that the owner would pay you at sundown when the work was completed. It wouldn't be held over till the next day. The Jewish law spoke about this on a number of occasions in uh, Moses' law. So as a worker, you had a right to expect that you would be paid. The interesting thing in this story is that those who were hired at the 11th hour are paid first and then it goes in that order. So payment is being made, he begins with the last. Why Jesus does this is because he wants to highlight the specific point that he's driving home and it gets really interesting, you know how the story goes. The guys who, now imagine you're the first people who had been hired and you're at the back of the queue waiting for your pay and you see these guys who have only worked for an hour and they roll up to the paymaster and the paymaster gives them a day's wage for an hour's work. Now, be honest, what would you be thinking? You've worked all day. It's been hot. It's been hard work. You've sweated. And as you see all the people in front of you who are getting paid, they're all getting paid a day's wage honest you would think this could be really good we're going to get something more look what this guy has done he's going to pay us more that's what's going through their head and of course they turn up and we read it there in verse 10 when those hired first came they thought that they would receive more and they also received a day's wage now the Australian Council of Trade Unions would have a field day with this wouldn't it can you imagine Facebook, Twitter, Instagram would go nuts. It would just be a riot. We would be hearing about this landowner and the unfairness and the unscrupulous of the landowner all week. He did this to his workers. He did that. He didn't do this. He's a miser. He's a skinflint. Can you imagine it? Well, I love the way the story goes. (laughs) It's so countercultural. It says in verse 11 that when they get their day's wage, they grumbled at the landowner. We've met this word before. It's that Greek word which I've shared with you before, gongousmos. It's a great word. And it means that they're complaining and mumbling. Gongousmos, gongousmos, gongousmos. You can just imagine. You can just hear it. And they're complaining. And they talk about, we have borne the burden. We've done the hard lifting. We worked in the hottest part of the day. And it gets to the heart of the issue. And what's the heart of the issue? The heart of the issue for these guys is, you made them equal with us. Don't miss that. That's the accusation. You made them equal with us. And we've done all the heavy lifting. What's the landowner's response? Again, you can just see this being published all over Twitter. (laughs) He says, friend... I've done you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? What was the agreement? You agreed that I would give you a fair day's pay for a fair day's work and I sent you out into the vineyard. You agreed. I haven't ripped you off. If these guys at the back of the queue who who had come first, if the guys in front of them had received more than them, they'd have something to complain about. But they haven't been ripped off. The owner has remained true to himself. He's remained true to the agreement. He's stayed true to his principles. He's stayed true to them. This is what we agreed on. And then he says, if I want to be generous, it's my money. Now, this is something we really struggle with in our 21st century community that somebody can actually do the right thing and they can choose to be generous if they want because at the end of the day, it's their money. But we whinge and complain and get all upset but we forget these principles and Jesus is saying, simply here, I haven't ripped you off. I've done you no wrong. This is what we agreed to. If I want to be generous to these other people, that's up to me. But bear in mind that they weren't paid any less than anybody else. I know some of you are sitting there right now saying, I still think it's unfair. And don't think for a minute that I haven't had to wrestle with this passage this week because you you get through and just when you think you're breaking through and trying to understand it, you go, this just doesn't seem right. (laughs) It doesn't seem right, it seems so unfair. But wait, come with me. Here's what he says. He says, look, I have the right to do with what I want with my own money, but look at the second part of verse 15. Is your eye envious because I am generous? Literally it reads is your eye evil because I am good? That's how it literally reads. And and it's interesting because in that culture, in Jewish culture, when you said someone had an evil eye, it meant that you were stingy. And so he's saying to these guys, look, you're stingy. Are are you judging me because of your own hard-heartedness because you're stingy when I am actually good? And there's an understanding here of... The insight into this Lord of the vineyard. Let me read to you Deuteronomy 24. Remember, I said to you that the day's labourers had to be paid at the end of the day. Listen to this passage because I think this is insightful. Many commentators say here that the workers who were paid just the denarius for working the whole day, many commentators say that they're actually accused or they're actually upset with the generosity of the landowner now there's no doubt that he's generous I think it's something deeper than that listen to Deuteronomy 24 verse 14 this was an instruction to landowners you shall not oppress listen to this you shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy whether he is one of your countrymen or one of your aliens who is in your land in your towns you shall give him his wages on his day before the sun sets now listen to this this is the part that cries out at your heart, for he is poor and sets his heart or his soul on it, so that he may not cry against you to the Lord and it becomes sin to you. You know what I think happened with this landowner? I think he went out at the 11th hour at 5 o'clock. He asked these men, why, has nobody, why are you hanging around here? Why aren't you working? And they said, nobody hired us. And I think his heart went out to them. I think that this man is a truly compassionate man, and it tells you something about the character of God, that he went out and he saw these men there and he thought... One hour, I'll send them into the vineyard. He sends them in, and that same heart of compassion is on display when those men are paid, and he pays them a the denarius because they set their heart on it. Now, those workers, I don't think those workers went in at an hour for an hour and they thought they were going to get a day's wage. I think that they expected they'd get something, and there would have been a small part that they could have been paid. They would have been blown out of the water by the generosity, but I think that it gets to the heart. It's, not, it's, it's the generosity, yes, but I think it's deeper. I think it's the compassion. And I think it tells us something about the heart of God and how he views people. That he looks at people who are stuck in their rut, they are stuck in their lives, and his heart goes out to them and he yearns for them. He wants to bless them. He has a heart of compassion and deep love for people. I think this owner had it, and as he represents God, it tells us something about God's character. Now, why did Jesus tell this parable? Well, it's interesting, because if you have a look in your Bibles or your reading devices, we're looking at chapter 20, verses 1 to 16. Now, notice this. If you just go back to chapter 19 of Matthew's Gospel, the last verse, verse 30, says this. It's the reverse of verse 16 in chapter 20. In verse 30, it says, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. Then we have the parable, and then we have verse 16 in chapter 20 which says thus the last shall be first and the first last so you've got a parenthesis Jesus introduces the thought tells the parable and then he concludes it with the same thought but why did Jesus do it well it's interesting because if you go further back into chapter 9 and have a look we're not going to read it but verses 16 to 26 you know the story of the rich young ruler guy comes up and says to Jesus good master tell me what good thing must I do so that I can get to heaven And Jesus puts his finger on the very thing that was the issue for him, which was his money and his possessions. And the young man goes away sad. And the the disciples, the interesting thing is the disciples are shocked. They're absolutely shocked. Why? Because he was rich. And in that culture, to be rich meant you were blessed. And if you're blessed, then surely you're one of God's. And so Jesus makes this statement after his confrontation with the rich young ruler and he says how difficult it is for those who are wealthy to get into the kingdom of God. And the disciples are shocked because the question they ask is, who then can be saved? If the wealthy aren't going to get there, if they aren't really blessed by God, who can be saved? And then it prompts another question from, as we would expect, Peter. So Jesus says, with men this is impossible but with God all things are possible. And Peter asks the question in verse 27, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? Can you see it? Wow, if the rich don't make it, we're poor, and we've given up everything for Jesus. Jesus, what are we going to get? Can you see the question? And then Jesus goes on and he says, you will be rewarded. He goes on and he says... Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake shall receive many times as much and shall inherit eternal life. There will be all this blessing for those who have followed the Lord Jesus. So he talks about rewards but then he makes this statement, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Do you know what Jesus is saying? Peter, you will be rewarded but that is actually not the point of following me or serving me. And so he makes this statement and to illustrate what it means for the first to be last and the last to be first. He tells this story about the vineyard and then he rounds it off with the punchline in verse 16 and he says, the the last shall be first and the first last. That's what it means, Peter. Everybody in my kingdom will be treated equally. There is a place for everybody. There is a reward, yes, if you serve me. But that's not the point. Because every one of us has to enter the kingdom under the same conditions. So here's the question. Some of you are struggling with this question. Some of you are asking this. You're saying that somebody can be a totally evil person and live an ungodly life and for most of their life not believe in God and then on their deathbed they can turn to Jesus and he will forgive them and give them a place in his kingdom. You're saying that God forgives the unforgivable. And if that's your view of God, then he's unfair. And yes, I am saying those things. I am saying that God forgives the unforgivable. And that a person who cries out from their heart to God in repentance, at whatever stage in their life, will be forgiven by God. God does forgive the unforgivable. Everybody is treated equally in his kingdom. We were reminded of that around the Lord's table today. There is a place for everybody in the kingdom of God. So let's give some thought to the inclusive God. There are four characteristics I just want to run through with you. These four characteristics describe the Lord of the vineyard who represents God. These four characteristics are applied to God. Look at the first characteristic. God is generous. Look at verse 4. He sends the 9 o'clock workers in on the promise, whatever is right, I will give you. Down in verse 14, he uses the word again. He says, I wish to give to this last man the same as you. I want you to notice the word give. The word give actually refers or has the implication of giving freely. So this is not a grudging gift. This is a free gift. It is a generous gift. And essentially, what he is saying is, if I want to be generous, I will be generous. So we know the landowner is generous. We know our Father is generous. Listen to these words, Matthew 5, verse 44. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why did Jesus say that? Sermon on the Mount. He said it for this reason, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. This is what he's like. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. Notice that. Well, I think we skip over this. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God is fundamentally intrinsically generous to everybody. He is generous in material gifts and he is generous in spiritual gifts. It speaks beautifully of God's character that he is a God who is generous to all and he is generous to all who repent. Think Think of the Bible. There was a guy called Manasseh. Manasseh was the son of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was one of the good kings of the southern kingdom of Judah. Hezekiah destroyed all the idols. He restored the true worship of God. Along comes his son Manasseh at the age of 12, ascends to the throne and he plunges Judah back into idolatry again. So evil was Manasseh that he even caused his own children to be sacrificed to false gods. He committed unspeakable sin, terrible atrocities, but you get to the end of his story in 2 Chronicles when he was dragged off to an Assyrian prison by the king of Assyria and there in the prison he cries out to God with a repentant heart and it says, the Lord heard Manasseh's prayer. And he's restored to his kingdom in Judah. He destroys all the idolatry that he plunged Judah into. He is forgiven. Incredible story of grace. But most of his life was spent in sin and leading people into sin. God forgives him. What about the story of Nineveh in the book of Jonah? God says to Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and proclaim to them the message that I want to send you, that if they don't repent, they will be destroyed. And Jonah hops on a boat and goes to the opposite direction of Nineveh. And we find out, do you know what the point of the book of Jonah is? The point of the book of Jonah is is that Jonah was a racist. Because, you see, the Ninevites were Gentiles. And after he goes through the experience of being swallowed by a great fish and then dumped back up on the shore, and he has a repentant heart, he goes and declares the message. But he doesn't do it with any joy, because he walks through the city of Nineveh, and he's rubbing his hands, and he's saying, if you don't repent, in 40 days God is going to destroy this city. But you can hear almost in his heart, oh boy, they're going to get it. He's not expecting repentance. The people of Nineveh, led by their king, cry out to God for repentance and he forgives. And then we have Jonah sitting under his little plant, trying to escape the sun and grumbling, saying, I knew this was what you would like. I knew you'd do this. That's the kind of God you are. And God says, you're exactly right. Should I not have compassion on this great city? Who didn't know me, who don't know right from wrong? Our God is a generous God. He forgives sin. We'll, we'll push more into that next week when we look at God and guilt. So let me ask you this question Can God forgive this man, responsible for the deaths of six million Jews? Can God forgive this next man? Osama bin Laden. Responsible for the deaths of thousands. Launching a reign of terror through terrorist attacks that we still suffer from today. Can God forgive him? What about this next guy? Can God forgive him? What do you think about it? How about this next guy? Our society ain't never going to forgive him. (laughs) What about this fella, Andrew Gaff? You watched the Derby last week? There are still Docker supporters who boo Andrew Gaff for his mistake four or five years ago. Can God forgive these people? I'm not expecting you to shout the answer out. Can God forgive these people? It's confronting, isn't it? Maybe the question we should be asking is, Because some of you, most of you are probably saying, yes, God can forgive these people. Maybe the question we should be asking this morning is, should they be forgiven? That's a more pointed question, isn't it? Should they be forgiven? Interesting question. As I look at the Bible, and as much as I struggle, particularly with some of these men pictured here, On that question, should they be forgiven? The God I know and the God that Jesus portrays to us is a God who says, Yes, I can and I will forgive, and I can forgive the unforgivable. I don't want you to read into my comments here either by saying, particularly with some of the men there, I'm not saying that they have been forgiven. That's dependent on them, or some of them, of course, are dead. It's dependent on where they're at in terms of their relationship with God and whether they had acknowledged their need for repentance. So don't hear me saying that this morning, but what I am saying is that the bald, bare facts of Scripture are that God can and does forgive the unforgivable. And we all enter the kingdom in the same way. Here's another characteristic of God. God does no wrong. You notice what the landowner said? I will do what is right. I will do what is right. I will send you into the vineyard and I will not treat you unjustly look at verse 13 i have not treated you or i have done you no wrong i have not treated you unjustly he says to the first workers i've been true to my word i have not mistreated you i've honored the deal that we struck i will not rip you off i remember hearing a sermon it was based on one of the parables this is 25 odd years ago the pastor was preaching and he said based on one of the parables that jesus told don't make deals with God because you'll come off second best. What violence to the character of God does a statement like that make? Don't do a deal with God because you'll come off second best. Don't you see the violence that does to the character of God? God is not an unjust God. And to say that we should not enter into an agreement with God because you'll come off second best, that implies that God is going to rip you off. And that's not the God that I know. Doesn't mean we don't struggle with these issues, folks. But for goodness sakes, God will not rip us off. He's not unjust. James 1.13 explains it so clearly. God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. There is no evil in God. There is no unjustness in the God that we worship and love. Third characteristic, God is just. We said he's not unjust, he will not do He will do no wrong. That means that God is just. Verse 4. Go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. Everybody goes in on trust. And the word for I will do what is right is that I will do what conforms to the right thing. I will do the right thing by you. And when this word is used of God, it describes the perfect symmetry between God's character and what he does. God is a just God, therefore what he does is just He always does what is right. It's hard for us to get our heads around that as human beings. But God's character is that he is right, and therefore his actions are right. The two go hand in hand. You can expect that a God who is just will do just things and will always act with justice. That is his character. Abraham knew this when he appealed to God in prayer for the people of Sodom, particularly praying for his nephew Lot, he appeals to the character of God, and he says, "This will not the judge of all the earth do right?" Or another way of reading it is, "Will not the judge of all the earth deal justly, do justice?" And the answer is, "Yes." God is just. Is God unfair because He forgives sin and turns a blind and and is accused of turning a blind eye to it? No, God doesn't turn a blind eye to sin. Because God forgives the unforgivable, does not make God unjust. He is a just God. Let's have a look at the picture of this man, Joseph Stalin. Joseph Stalin was born into a Christian home. He was sent for 10 years of his life to a Christian school. He was studying for the priesthood before he was kicked out because of his Marxist views. He became one of the most ruthless dictators the world has ever seen. Historians will tell you that somewhere in the vicinity of 40 million of his own people were slaughtered as a result of Joseph Stalin. Some historians estimate it's out at around about 60 million. But we'll go with the conservative estimate. 40 million people died at the hands of Stalin. And there have been stories that on his deathbed after he'd suffered a stroke that he was repentant. Folks, that doesn't seem to be what the the history books would say. Joseph Stalin died an angry man calling down judgment on people. This is what his daughter said. Now, I'm sharing this with you to try and give you some perspective. And maybe I'm going to get shot down for this. What I'm saying to you is, could God forgive Joseph Stalin? Absolutely. Do I think Joseph Stalin repented when he died? No, I don't. Listen to what his daughter said. She was at his deathbed. She said, the death agony was terrible. My understanding is that his daughter became a Christian. She said, the death agony was terrible. God grants an easy death only to the just. Uh, My father literally choked to death as we watched. At what seemed like the very last moment, he suddenly opened his eyes and cast a glance over everyone in the room. It was a terrible glance, insane or perhaps angry and full of fear of death. Then something incomprehensible and terrible happened to this day, I cannot forget. He suddenly lifted his left hand as though he were pointing to something up above and bringing down a curse on us all. The gesture was incomprehensible and full of menace. The next moment, after a final effort, the spirit wrenched itself free of the flesh. Can God forgive men like that? Yes. But I share that story with you, perhaps to, to just... Kind of balance it out. We can't make judgments, but it's highly unlikely that man repented, folks. And we can rest in the justice of God that he will be held accountable for his sins. Everybody is treated equally. Final point God is good. Look at verse 15. Is your eye envious or evil because I am good? You know that the word good there means. Good that benefits other people. A good God does good things that brings benefit to people. And this comes to the essence of salvation. God wants to do good to people. God wants to bring people into his kingdom. Jesus reminded the rich young ruler, no one is good but God alone. And what is the heart of this good God? Listen to 1 Timothy 2 verse 4. God wants or desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, if you didn't get it from that verse, look at 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Do you know what that word wishing means? It's a really strong word. There's two words for will or desire or wishing in the scripture. The one that is used in 2 Peter 3.9 is the stronger of the two, and it means a strong desire. Now hear that. What is the strong desire of God? What is the strong will of God? That none should perish. But everyone, notice, should come to repentance. We all come the same way. Whether we consider ourselves good, bad, or in between, we all come the same way. But the strong, deliberate exercise of the will of God is he wants everyone to come to that place. He does not want people to perish. His strong desire is for them to come to know him and repent and be forgiven. So what does it take? Well, to close with, and we're going to push into this, we're not going to talk about this now, I'm just going to give you these three very quick points. What does it take to be forgiven? It doesn't depend on you. That's the first thing. It doesn't depend on you. It doesn't depend on how remorseful or repentant you are. It depends solely and purely on the grace of God. It doesn't depend on you. And when you turn to God, when like the thief on the cross, you cry out, Jesus, remember me. Here's what the scripture says. And we push into this next week. You are forgiven and you are not condemned. So if you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, I have committed a sin or sins that God could never forgive, think again. Because God forgives the unforgivable and when he does you are forgiven completely and you are not condemned. We push into this uh, more next week. I want to close with this and I want to close in prayer because there are people who are struggling in our community particularly in the community next door to us, the Kingsley community this week you would have seen the news on TV that Umar Patek who was instrumental in uh, the Bali bombings has been set free 10 years early this is not a question for me of unforgiveness or forgiveness. I can honestly say that. I think there's a justice issue. And I'm... Well, what have I got to lose? I think it's a wrong decision. But I'm not coming from a basis of that man can't be forgiven and should not be forgiven. I just think it's wrong. It's a fundamental issue of justice. But I know this. That there are people in our community, particularly in the Kingsley community this weekend, who are struggling right now with that decision. As I am, as you are. Would, wouldn't you agree? So here's what we want to do. We want to bow before the God who loves everybody, who forgives everybody, who treats us all equally, this inclusive God who created a community that is inclusive of all people. We're going to bow before him and pray now and pray for those people and pray for our community. Would you join with me? Let's pray. Our Father, our hearts go out to the victims of the and the families and friends of people who they lost in the Bali bombings 20 years ago. And Lord, it touches us because the Kingsley community is so close to us. Seven people from that football club lost their lives. And these families and friends are struggling with this. So Father, my prayer is that, whether it be through your people or direct intervention from yourself, that you will reach out to these people and to the families of everybody and friends of everyone who lost people people around the world would you reach out to them with your love and compassion and reveal yourself to them this weekend as we have looked at this morning that you are a God who does no wrong, you are a generous God you are a just God you are a good God would you reveal your character to those people and bring them to yourself And Father, we pray for Umar Patek, pray for the authorities and the people around him. We pray the same prayer. Lord, we're not going to judge this man's heart or the people's hearts who've made this decision. We struggle with it. But Lord, we pray that in the same way, you would reveal yourself to them, to him, as the God who is generous, who does no wrong, who is just. Who is good. Who forgives the unforgivable. And treats us all equally. In Jesus' name we pray.